This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The ongoing situation in Ukraine. World leaders are still pursuing diplomatic efforts to prevent a Russian invasion, But there's confusion over what's really happening on the ground. Russia says that it's pulling some of its troops back from the border. But the U.S. and NATO say they have yet to see any evidence of a significant military withdrawal. Joining us to discuss the situation and what's next for Ukraine and NATO is former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Evo Dalder. Ambassador Dalder is president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome back to Reset, Ambassador. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. What are your thoughts on this latest news from today where, you know, Russia says it's withdrawing troops and the U.S. and NATO say that's not happening, at least not yet? Well, the situation continues to be as confusing as possible. And I think that's partly because that's how Vladimir Putin wants it. He is trying to maintain some sense of surprise, some sense of an ability to to move without us knowing that he's doing so. That's his MO. That's what he did in uh, Georgia in 2008 when he invaded. It it was what he did really in 2014. You remember these little green men that Mm -hmm. were all of a sudden appearing in Crimea without any insignia under under uniforms. And he's trying to create some form of uh, operational surprise here in at this moment. And the U.S. has been thwarting that effort by publicizing the large-scale troop movements that have been going on, the exercises, and everything else. So my best bet is this is a feint. Uh, He may be moving some troops away, but by all accounts, more troops are arriving at the border than, uh, than are leaving. And it's uh, it's designed to have some sense that things can go better and be uh, there's a diplomatic solution some way out mm-hmm. uh, until we find out that all of a sudden there are little green men or something else happening in uh, in Kiev or in other places in Ukraine. Well, I don't think this is the end of the crisis. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading that Western officials are, quote, cautiously optimistic that there can be a peaceful resolution to the conflict. So do you share that cautious optimism at this point? We always want to be optimistic that uh, we can avoid military confrontation, and particularly, you know, with 150,000 troops, as President Biden said yesterday, now arrayed uh, north, uh, east, and and south of Ukraine, ready really to invade and and take over the capital within a matter of days. Uh, we want to have a peaceful uh, and diplomatic solution. The the problem is. The demands that Vladimir Putin has put on Ukraine, has put on the United States, has put on NATO are not demands that are negotiable. We're we're not in a position to tell the Ukrainians that they should submit to Russian diktat on on anything, Mm -hmm. let alone on their future foreign policy. NATO is not going to have a two-tier membership in in, in which those who are joined in the last uh, 15 years are not going to be defended uh, just because Vladimir Putin doesn't like it. 
and the United States is not going to leave Europe, which is what he would like uh, us to do. There's plenty of other things we can negotiate about, and the President Biden has put out a series of agreements and uh, of ideas on arms control, on confidence-building measures, on notification of exercises, uh, a whole bunch of things we could do. But they don't go to the core of what Putin seems to want. And the only way that Putin thinks he can get it is through military force. You you bring up some interesting points there, Ambassador. I, I want to take a moment and sort of break them down uh, individually so we get a clear understanding. Do you think Russian President Vladimir Putin has successfully exploited any differences between the Western allies in NATO? No, not yet. I think part of what he was trying to do was to bring together an overwhelming force, threaten war in the hope that NATO would split, in the hope that maybe in Ukraine there would be differences uh, over whether or not to join NATO or indeed whether or not to support Russia, Mm -hmm. that NATO would itself split on the issue of whether we should find a way out diplomatically no matter what the cost or stand uh, stand together, and indeed to have differences between the United States and and Europe on, on how to respond. And instead of finding these differences, what he's found is a Ukraine that is more united uh, and, and more identifies as a, as a separate Ukrainian nation, uh, as it has long been, in which in Ukrainian nationalism has gone up, a NATO that is, in fact, more united on this issue than it probably has been on any issue since the end of the Cold War, and a strengthened relationship between the United States and its allies in Europe, which was brittle after four years of Trump and uh, distrust that had been created there. So if his calculation was that the threat of force Mm. would make Ukraine and and NATO buckle, they haven't. You also mentioned the role that uh, the U.S. is playing so far. Is this country approaching the situation in the right way, in your opinion? Yeah, I do think uh, we've done as much as we can. We made a basic decision back in 2014 that the interests of the United States were not sufficiently engaged to have a direct military confrontation with Russia in and over Ukraine. So President Obama, uh, President Trump didn't really face this issue, though all his rhetoric was, was, was similar. And President Biden have all said, we are not going to use U.S. military forces to defend Ukraine. It's not a member of NATO. And therefore, we're not going to do that. I think that's the one issue where we can debate uh, or not. I think it probably is the correct way to think about it. But then if that's what your decision is, you have to do a couple of other things. And I think the Biden administration has done this exactly right. One is you need to strengthen the punishment, the deterrence, the ability to tell the Russians this is going to cost you dearly economically and a stronger NATO and more support for the Ukrainians if you go ahead with it. And secondly, being open to have a diplomatic uh, engagement. And the President Biden has now talked to President Putin three times over the crisis. uh, Secretary of State Blinken has talked to the Foreign Minister Lavrov almost daily now. uh, And we've had meetings on what a diplomatic uh, route may be with Europeans, with NATO, uh, and with others. So yeah, I think we've done about as good as we can. Ultimately, Putin created this crisis And the only way it gets resolved is by Putin to figure out how to resolve a short of war. Let's talk about the role of uh, President Macron of France. Uh, He keeps talking about a new framework for European security. What exactly might that entail? You know, frankly, I don't know. I tweeted over the weekend. I said, if everybody, any serious question, can anybody tell me what this new framework 
is about. I mean, in some sense, the answer I'm getting back, well, he wants a bigger role for Europe. So that's great, but to do what? Mm-hmm. And how would Europe as a singular entity through the European Union or in other ways uh, have a different approach uh, than the United States has? And the answer is it actually doesn't because the United States and Europe are united. They're united on the issue of imposing massive sanctions if Russia does further invade Ukraine. They're united on the need to reinforce NATO in the East and the French, uh, as well as others, including the United States, of course, have sent more troops to Eastern Europe in order to reassure those allies that whatever happens in Ukraine cannot and will not happen when it comes to NATO territory, no Russian troops or anything uh, that threatens the territorial sovereignty of NATO countries. And they have also agreed on, on a framework for engaging in arms control and other negotiations. So I'm, I'm somewhat mystified about what President Macron is, is offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talked at times about a new arrangement for Ukraine in which it would be neutral or, or, or subject to you know, what he called Finlandization, a very unfortunate term that he took back later, which is this idea that you can be independent, but still subject, you know, your foreign policy is constrained by having a, a large Russian neighbor next to you, which was true for Finland during the Cold War. Yeah. But that's not a solution either, because as he rightly says, uh, every state in Europe should have the right to choose their own alliances. You know, Ambassador, I wonder if we could take a step back for a moment uh, and just think big picture. What would you say is at stake if Russia were to invade Ukraine? Well, a lot is at stake, first of all, of course, for Ukraine. Uh, uh, The kind of military forces that are arrayed against it, 150,000 troops, according to President Biden uh, yesterday, can do massive, massive damage to the country by U.S. intelligence estimates, sources saying uh, 10 to 50,000 Ukrainian casualties and up to 10,000 Russian casualties. That is a serious military confrontation with extraordinary impact on Ukraine. The people themselves are likely, large numbers are likely to flee the country, which will create a burden on Eastern European and European countries of refugees. The economic consequences of a major war in Europe, where gas pipelines exist and so much else else happens, will be devastating for uh, for Ukraine. The consequences for Russia, because of the sanctions that would be uh, imposed, are going to be very severe as well, economically and in in other ways. But in a larger sense, uh, what's at stake here is an idea in you know that that sort of emerged after world war ii that we don't change borders through the use of military force and uh, russia has repeatedly signed on to that agreement but not only is it part of the u.n charter uh, of which of course russia is through the soviet union a signatory but it's part of a whole series of european documents that russia has signed including when it was russia no longer the soviet union and this idea that borders can be changed by force is deeply destructive of order of peace and of freedom, not just for Ukrainians, but frankly, if you succeed here, what's next? Well, uh, let's shift the conversation over to your organization, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You're celebrating your centennial this year. We are. So fill us in on on the council's work, first of all, and, and your mission. We're celebrating it this Sunday, believe it or not. Sun- this Sunday is uh, oh, the uh, anniversary, thank you, of, uh, uh, of 23 uh, women and men, actually more women and men, coming together in the belief that it was important for people in Chicago to understand what was happening in the world, uh, how what was happening in the world might affect them. And so they created an organization 
that brought experts and, and leaders and foreign and other leaders to Chicago to have a conversation first over lunches and dinners, but later in larger settings about what was happening in the world. And the council emerged uh, in, in Chicago uh, in the midst of a rising tide of isolationism back in the 1920s that, of course, solidified itself in the 30s with uh, the America First movement of the 1930s, uh, even headquartered here in Chicago with the Chicago Tribune leading the the idea about that the United States should really be isolated from the rest of the world. And the council was on the other side. It said that an open world is a better world, a more peaceful world. Mm -hmm. And it was trying to help people understand that by bringing different voices together. And in essence, that's what we still do. It's changed in the way we do it. We do it digitally. We do it through Zoom and YouTube meetings and podcasts nice. and, and a whole variety of other things. Yeah, some uh, incredible well, speakers well over the last hundred years. Eleanor Roosevelt, Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, comedian John Stewart. Um, you've got one returning for your big centennial fundraiser on March 10th. Yeah, we have uh, one who's actually appeared a number of times, uh, mm -hmm. including uh, when uh, he set out his foreign policy ideas uh, in a run for presidency, uh, Barack Obama. Yeah. So Barack Obama and Yo-Yo Ma, another great American with a with a, a different twist on global on global engagement, uh, using culture and music uh, to speak to folks from around the world, are uh, are our honorees on March 10 when we will have our uh, centennial gala. Two people who have done a lot for this city, uh, Chicago, through their their various political and cultural pursuits, but also have done so much for the world uh, to bring it together in highly contentious times. So mm -hmm. we're very honored that they have agreed to uh, to be our honorees, and we're looking forward to a fantastic discussion uh, between the two of them. Well, in, in closing, Ambassador, tell us some of your big dreams for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs as it goes into this next 100 years. Well, our biggest uh, dream really is to continue to do what we have done in the past 100 years, bringing people together, creating a community of globally conscious folks who are interested in, in fact-based analysis of what's happening in the world, who are interested in diverse perspectives, but are also interested in debating those in the civil uh, way and given the polarization that exists in the country, to continue to bring that to, to folks here in Chicago and Chicagoland, but increasingly throughout the Midwest and, and the nation. The digital medium that we have all become so familiar with in the COVID era really does allow us to reach out to a much larger uh, group of folks around the country, to bring them together in, in various discussions, to have them participate in dialogue about what is happening in the world, and to create a community not of, uh, of like-minded people, because we want people with very different perspectives all feeling welcome, but a community that is dedicated to uh, civil discourse and debate and understanding and learning about what is happening in the world and, frankly, why it matters to them. That's it for today's Reset Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for news you can depend on, whether it's the latest on state and city politics or COVID updates. And please give us a rating and a review. It helps folks like you find us too. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow afternoon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.